0: Our scripture for today comes from Mark 13, verses 14 through 31. The Word of God speaks to us. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of God
1: to us. God. Hey, guys. Good morning. It's good to see everybody today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry, and we're in the gospel of Mark. So if you've got a Bible, you can start finding chapter 13. And I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to ask you to pray for me, and we're going to dive in to this clearly easy-to-interpret text. <laughs> All right. Hey, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you're doing in our midst and in our world. And in the midst of all the things that are happening in the Ukraine, we again come as your people and we ask that you would extend your hand of power and grace and mercy. God, we pray that you would restrain evil on this planet. We pray that you would bring peace where there's bloodshed. We pray that you would bring knowledge of Jesus where there's ignorance. We pray, Lord, that people would stand with hands lifted high, and that they would make their boast, not in money, not in geopolitical systems, but in the resurrection of Jesus. We pray in particular, as I've spoken to many of them this week, we pray for our men and women that are in the armed forces. We pray that you would bless them and keep them and grant them courage, and we thank you for their willingness to serve. We pray today as we open up your word that you would form us and shape us and give us eyes to see clearly, Jesus, what you're saying and what it means. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, well, no sermon on the Olivet Discourse is complete without starting with a quote from Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox once said, the future hasn't happened yet and the past is gone. So I think the only moment that we have is right here and now, and I try to make the best of those moments the moments that I'm in. Okay, pause with me for just a second, because there's a lot of that statement that feels really plausible. There's a lot of that statement that feels really wise, because it's true, none of us can change the past. And it's also true that none of us know the future, nor can we control it. So it feels as if, if we're going to live a wise life, a life that's responsive in the midst of a world that's really scary and chaotic, that we should simply occupy ourselves with the present. But I actually want to argue that a uniquely Christian perspective, a Christian perspective that has the power to build an identity that's not plastic that's not constantly shifting, that's not responsive and reactive to circumstances actually requires a relationship with the past and a relationship with the future. I would argue, I would argue that without a relationship with the past, we're doomed to be like ships without an anchor. And without a relationship with the future, we're gonna be like ships without a rudder. We won't know where we're going. So let me give you a different perspective. This is something that Pope Francis said in a sermon in 2014. He said, a Christian without memory is not a true Christian, but only halfway there. Such a man or a woman is a prisoner of the moment who doesn't know how to treasure his or her history, doesn't know how to read it and live it as salvation history. Okay, that's a really penetrating statement. That's so different to pop wisdom. What Pope Francis is saying, which is not a uniquely Roman Catholic perspective, it's a uniquely Christian perspective, is that for us to be the people of God, which is what we are if we've trusted in Jesus, and what you will be if you hear his invitation today and trust him is to be people whose identity is not a responsive act of self-curation in response to your circumstances, but a person whose identity is actually shaped by what God has been doing throughout history going back to the beginning. And it's to actually be a person who doesn't have to live in fear, or an anxiety about the future, no matter how crazy things get on this planet, to be a Christian is to be a person that can look ahead with courage and hold on to the promises of God as more sure and more solid than your economy, more sure and more solid than whoever is elected into office, more sure and more solid than the ability of our environment to bounce back from disasters. To be a Christian is to be able to navigate the universe as one who has a past and a future. And if you have a a past and a future in Jesus, you have a present that actually is marked by faith. And so today, as we talk about Jesus' words to his disciples, that's exactly the work that he's doing. He's helping his original disciples to be rooted and grounded in their past. He's using prophetic languages and prophecies of the Old Testament to remind them that their moment has been shaped by what God has already done. And he's giving them prophecies about the future so that they'll have resilience and courage in the midst of tribulation so that they would not be plastic and fragile, but so that they could have resolute determination in Jesus to endure whatever comes. And I would say, in our moment, we need the exact same thing. We need to be people with a past and a people with a future so that we can be people that navigate the present. So let me remind you what we did last week. If you weren't here, this is one of those rare weeks where it might feel a little bit difficult to jump into the flow. Last week, we started walking through Mark chapter 13, which is one of the most difficult to interpret passages in all of Scripture. And what we saw last week in chapter 13 is that Jesus made a prophetic exit and a shocking statement. He left the temple, which was the center of Jewish life and identity. He went away from the temple to the Mount of Olives across from the temple, and he made a shocking prophecy. He said that not one stone of the temple would be left standing on another. That statement left his disciples spinning. The temple was the place of God's presence on planet earth. It was to be a place of prayer and worship and sacrifice. It was a place that was beautiful to behold. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And Jesus says, its time is numbered. And the disciples asked Jesus in the midst of their fear and anxiety, when is that going to happen and how will we know it's about to happen? And then Jesus proceeded to walk through a bunch of things that he describes as the beginning of birth pains. He talks about false messiahs. He talks about persecution. He talks about the gospel spreading throughout the Roman world. And he tells his disciples, in the midst of the beginnings of birth pains, don't be surprised, don't be anxious, don't be panicked. The prophecy's not yet. Today, Jesus is going to turn gears and he's going to tell them how to know when the destruction of the temple is about to take place. So take your Bibles. I want to walk you through a few things and then we're going to land today like we did last week in trying to think about the application of this ancient text to how we live today. Here we go. The first thing I want you to see is the abomination of desolation, which would be an amazing death metal band. The abomination of desolation. Jesus is now getting to the specific answer to their question, how will we know that the temple's about to be destroyed? And I want you to pick up in chapter 13, verse 14. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, what's happening here? This phrase, the abomination of desolation, or literally in the Greek, the abomination that causes desolation, is a reminder of the Old Testament idea of abomination. An abomination to the Jewish people was an object of disgust or hatred. It was connected to idolatry, and it was connected to profaning the holy things of God. And when he says, let the reader understand, Jesus is giving them a clue and us a clue that he's quoting from the prophet Daniel, who was the one that had God reveal to him this thing called the abomination of desolation, this moment of blasphemy that would take place. And this is pointing to at least two things that we need to understand. The first thing is Daniel was prophesying about the abomination of desolation was something that took place in 180, or 168 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple of God by offering a sacrifice of a pig on the altar to Zeus. That was a moment that caught absolute abhorrence to all Jewish people. It was a blasphemy before God. But what Jesus is telling his disciples is just as the temple was desecrated in 168, the way that they're going to know that the temple is about to be destroyed is that another abomination of desolation is going to take place. It's going to be a moment of idolatry. It's going to be a moment that's going to be shocking and offensive to people that love and worship God. Let me quote from Kingdom Come, which is a helpful book that describes what Jesus is pointing at. The most likely identification is Titus and the armies of Rome. While the city of Jerusalem was still burning, the soldiers brought their legionary standards into the temple precincts and they offered sacrifices there, declaring Titus to be victor. And the idolatrous representation of Caesar and the Roman eagle on the standards would have constituted the worst imaginable blasphemy to the Jewish people. Here's what Jesus is saying. There's a day coming when the temple's gonna be destroyed and you're gonna know that that's about to happen. It's gonna be the sign that you need to get out of the city that you need to flee when you see the temple being desecrated when this idolatrous moment happens. And this is exactly what happened in the days leading up to 70 AD as Titus and the armies of Rome surrounded the temple, they made pagan sacrifices and they held up legionary standards that were symbols of the worship of of false gods. And what Jesus is saying is when you see that happen, the birth pains are over. The things about to take place that I promised would happen, the temple's going to be destroyed. And he emphasizes that this event will be devastating and rapid starting in verse 15. He says, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant or for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. This is the abomination of desolation. This leads to the second thing. Jesus talks about the great tribulation of those days. The great tribulation of those days. Pick up in verse 19 with me. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now. And never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says, Look, here is the Christ, or Look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Be on guard, I have told you these things beforehand. Okay, let's pause here and talk about what's happening. How is it possible that the Great Tribulation could be describing events surrounding 70 AD and the destruction of the temple? Let me give you a few things to think about. First of all, Jesus' prophecy of the Great Tribulation of those days does not discount future tribulations. What we know from an understanding of human history is that until Jesus returns, There will always be tribulations and trials. There will be dark days. There will be wars. There will be famines. There will be natural disasters. There will be bloodshed. There will be hatred. Evil things will take place until the day Jesus returns to finally vanquish all sin, evil, and death. Secondly, the events of 70 AD are far more horrific and shocking than we tend to realize. Josephus, who was an eyewitness of these events, described them in a 200-page book called The War of the Jews. And what Josephus describes pertaining to the events of 70 AD are, quite frankly, R-rated and awful. What we hear is that violent factions within the city started taking control and committing atrocities. Bands of thieves and murderers were roving the city. It was complete anarchy and chaos. In one event, zealots tortured and killed 12,000 of the city's nobles at one time. In addition, food supplies were burned as the granaries were destroyed by the Roman armies, and water sources were intentionally polluted so that people were starving and dying of thirst. There are recorded accounts of people that were selling children to buy food, of cannibalism in the city, and people who were eating leather, animal dung, and trash from open sewers. It was widespread, and it was devastating. We know from history that Romans crucified around 500 people a day outside the walls of Jerusalem. So if you were on the walls of the city of Jerusalem and you looked out, the city would be surrounded every single day with fresh people being crucified by Rome. And what we know is that at the end of this siege, everyone in the city of Jerusalem was either killed or sold into slavery. Realistic estimates are that 100,000 people were sold into slavery, and that 1.1 million people in the city were killed. This event was horrific. This leads to the third thing. Jesus is using, as he describes the great tribulation, Jesus is using familiar Old Testament language when he says, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and will never be. It's a kind of prophetic language used to focus on the severity of the destruction. Let me give you just a few examples. In Joel chapter two, the prophet says this, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there will be, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be after it again to all the years of many generations. And again, if you look at Ezekiel chapter five, speaking of the impending Babylonian captivity that the Jewish people would endure, he prophesies, and because of your abominations. I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. And then in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prophesies, thus he has confirmed his word, which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole of heaven, there has not been anything like that which was done to Jerusalem. The point being, when Jesus talks about the great tribulation, he's not saying that there won't be further tribulations, that there won't be more moments of darkness and evil and sin and bloodshed. Jesus is describing the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in language that would be familiar to Jewish people that had read the Old Testament, describing the severity of destruction and judgment that would take place. And this leads to the third thing, one of the most controversial bits of this entire passage Number three, the Son of Man is coming in clouds with great power and glory. Look at Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, stop here, and I want you to track with me and hear me as clearly as you can. I want to be crystal clear, explicit, and as obvious as I can be that the New Testament absolutely, completely, 100% prophesies that Jesus will return again. Can I get an amen from somebody? The scripture speaks of that, that there will be a day where Jesus returns, where sin, evil, and death are ultimately vanquished. It will be a powerful day. It will be a visible day. The Bible talks about it. In fact, next week as Kincer gets up to preach, and I don't have to preach Mark chapter 13 anymore, praise be to God. When Kincer gets up to preach next week, he's going to take you through multiple passages in the New Testament that are about the second coming, the return of Jesus. However, even though it has become popular to assume that verse 26, when it says, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, is about the second coming, there are compelling reasons in the text and in the rest of the Bible why this interpretation misses the mark. In short, what I'm saying is that though the Bible is crystal clear about the second coming of Jesus, This text that we just read is not about the second coming of Jesus. It's about something different, and it's about something that we really need to hear. So let me give you two reasons for this. Number one, verse 30 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Okay, Jesus, as we saw last week, is talking about this generation. And though some people have tried to say that this generation is a term that refers to the Jewish race, here's what we find. That Greek word is used 27 times in the Gospels, and it never once means race. Jesus' contemporaries would have heard this language, and they would have known that this particular word referred to all those living at the time Jesus was speaking. So when Jesus says, all these things are going to take place within this generation— There is nothing in the context that Jesus is assuming some sort of at least 2,000 year gap between this prophecy and the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus was not mistaken. As a lot of more progressive liberal scholars have said, Jesus was not doing origami with words. Jesus meant what he said, and he said what he meant, and what he said is that these things are going to happen within that generation. Secondly, and even more importantly, and this is where we get to see a vision of Jesus that Mark is pointing to that changes our lives, more importantly, Jesus is using Old Testament language that would be familiar to his disciples. Look at verse 24 with me again. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heavens. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Okay, listen, if we didn't have the rest of the Old Testament that used this same type of language, we would assume that this is talking about the end of time and space, the return of Jesus, the destruction of the natural world, and the beginnings of the new heavens and the new earth. But, track with me, the Old Testament in dozens of places, all over, stacking reference on top of reference on top of reference, uses the same language of the stars being darkened, of collapsing universe terminology, of cosmic events, of scary language, to describe not what's happening at the end of history, but to describe the ways in which God was working in history. History, ways in which God was coming to bring judgment or to bring deliverance and to move in the events of human beings. Let me give you just a couple of examples. In Isaiah chapter 13, the prophet describes the judgment of God on Babylon. Here's what he says For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. Does that sound familiar? The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. That is not about the end of the world. That is about the destruction that God brought on Babylon. Ezekiel, the prophet, described the destruction of Egypt in these ways. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and I will make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And all the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you, and I will put darkness over the land, declares the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt desolate, and when the land is desolate of all that fills it, when I strike down all those who dwell in it, then they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, I could go to reference after reference after reference that describes the sun being darkened, the stars falling from the heavens, using huge, cosmic, universe language to describe not the end of history, but to describe these definitive, decisive moments where God draws near to history to shape events, to bring judgment, and to bring rescue. And this is really important because track with me the entire book of Mark. The book that we've been studying for months now, the whole point of this book is that Mark wants people to see Jesus. He wants people to understand Jesus, not just as another rabbi or another prophet or a guy that was merely sent of God, but Mark has gone to great pains to show us that Jesus is different than any other prophet. He's different than any other teacher. He is nothing less than God in the flesh, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when Jesus uses this language to describe him coming in the clouds to bring judgment, what he's saying is that the same type of Old Testament language used to describe God the Father when God the Father came to shape history is now used to describe God the Son as he moves to shape history. Jesus is quoting And pointing to the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. And listen, there is nothing in your life that you need more than a big view of Jesus. More than you need life hacks. More than you need a better budget. More than you need communication skills for your spouse. As much as we all need those. More than anything in your life, you need a biblical vision of Jesus. A vision of Jesus that gives you courage, that gives you faith. A vision of Jesus that helps you live well and helps you die well. And what Jesus is doing here is he's claiming Daniel chapter 7 for himself. Here's what Daniel said. Listen to these words. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. It's the same language Jesus used. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That was Jesus' favorite title to describe himself, son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Hey, listen, this is really important. There are passages all over the New Testament that describe explicitly the return of Jesus, his bodily return, which we will see if we're still alive when he comes back. Those passages are powerful, they're beautiful, but what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 13, in the verses that we just read, Jesus is saying that the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was a definitive sign to the world that Jesus Christ, who was humiliated and crucified, has now been exalted. And the same power and authority that God the Father used to bring judgment and deliverance in the Old Covenant, Jesus the Son is using to bring to the nations in the New Covenant. Jesus is coming with the clouds of glory to be presented to God the Father. That's not what happens at the end of history. That's what happened at the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus when he ascended back to the Father. Let me read to you from R.T. France who has a great book called Jesus in the Old Testament. France writes, Jesus is using Daniel chapter seven as a prediction of that authority which he exercised when in 70 AD the Jewish nation and its leaders who had condemned him were overthrown. And Jesus was vindicated as the recipient of all power from the ancient of days. Jesus exalted after his death and resurrection to receive his everlasting dominion will display it within the generation by an act of judgment on the nation and capital of the authorities who presume to judge him. And they will see for themselves that their time of power is finished, that it is to him that God has given all power in heaven and on earth. This is a text about the authority, power, and majesty of Jesus. The Jesus who is humiliated is the Jesus who is exalted. So where do we go with this? What do we do with this? Let me give you a few things to think about. First of all, this text is telling us that Jesus is the temple that destroys temples. Jesus is the very presence of God in the flesh that came to do away with temples. The temple that Jesus destroyed is a temple that was built for human glory by human hands. It was nothing less than a temple built by Herod, a power-hungry man And it was a temple that had devolved over the years into the worship of money and into the worship of power. And as Jesus destroys the temple, what we have is God's declaration that Jesus Christ is the presence of God and all false temples have to give way. What does this mean for you and me? Well, can can we just be honest? You and me, though we live in a culture that doesn't typically engage brick and mortar temples... We're constantly building temples about human glory and human power and human control. We build temples of self-rule to self as God, that it's my way or the highway, that I'm my highest authority. We build temples to marriage and family, thinking that marriage and family is ultimate, that marriage and family can name us, that marriage and family is worthy of our worship and devotion as ultimate satisfaction. We build temples to money and career. We build temples to pleasure and comfort. We build temples all over the place. And what Jesus is telling us by way of application is that every imitation God must give way. Every false place of worship will crumble. And just as not one stone was left upon another in that temple, there is not one stone that will be left upon another for all the other false temples that we work so hard to build. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it really well. Yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Hey, let let me tell you something that could be really helpful in navigating the world. Sometimes the very things that we're trying to hold to, cling to, preserve, and worship as our highest good are the very things that Jesus Christ is shaking to their very core. And if we try to navigate our world, trying to hold on to what we think is unshakable, human health or human power, or our ability to control our kids or our circumstances, here's what you're gonna find. You're gonna find that sometimes you're working against the very purpose of Jesus, who is shaking things that can be shaken, so that the one thing that can't be shaken would remain, the kingdom of God. In addition, this is a powerful reminder that Jesus suffered humiliation and judgment before he brought judgment. Isn't it fascinating that the language of the sun being darkened and stars falling from heaven, this collapsing universe terminology describing an act in history of God's judgment is pointing also to the most definitive act, the most powerful act of judgment in human history in which Jesus Christ willingly bore our judgment. And and can you track with me, like isn't it crazy that quite literally on the cross, the gospel writers record that the sun was darkened. Jesus is exalted, and Jesus has the authority and power above every name and above every temple that tries to raise itself up against him, but Jesus was first humiliated and destroyed, and he bore our judgment. And what this means is that to hide in Jesus, to take refuge in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, is to move from being under the judgment of God to receiving the grace and mercy of God. It's God's desire that all people would hide themselves in his son, that we would take refuge in him, that he would be our tower, that he would be our rear guard, that we would come to him and receive what he did for us. That he that knew no sin became sin. That for Jesus... For us, Jesus became the punishment for our hatred and our greed and our lust and our idolatry and our obsession with self and our belittling of God, that Jesus was first humiliated and judged before he brought judgment. And all of this means that just as his disciples needed to figure out what to do with Jesus, 2,000 years later, we still need to figure out what to do with Jesus, Because, track with me, like, there will be ongoing tribulations, ongoing dark moments, and there will be a day where Jesus does return. There will be a day where everything that can be shaken will be ultimately and permanently shaken. And responding to Jesus rightly is like, taking that seriously now. The reality that every single one of us is going to die, like, That shakes everything, does it not? That shakes legacy, that shakes what we build, that shakes our obsessions. And to trust in Jesus, to yield to Jesus, is to actually respond to him and say, hey, in your death, I die. I'm already dead, I'm already carrying a cross. And in your resurrection, I will live forever, so I'm not afraid of death anymore. Death has lost its sting. To trust in Jesus is to confess that he's not just your personal Lord and Savior, although he is, but to trust in Jesus is to declare with Paul in Ephesians that he has the name that's above every name, that we trust in Jesus, that we don't have to be afraid of Caesar, we don't have to be terrified when wars take place and when disasters take place and when horrible things happen on this planet. Like, we can know That to love and trust Jesus is to know that even if we're killed, we can't be killed. (laughs) That we're his and he's ours. That he's Lord, not just friend. And to respond to Jesus is to get started to intentionally engage the project that he's going to complete on the great day, which is the dismantling of temples. Like, it's a way better thing to tear down our own temples than to have Jesus come and tear down our temples. So the places of idolatry, where we're worshiping things that aren't God, those are our temples. The things that we think we can't live without, those are our temples. The things that we think can name us and protect us and rescue us, those are our temples. And we can let go of those things and hold the Jesus or we can have those things shaken for our good, but ultimately, all those temples are gonna fall. So we might as well get busy with the project now. (laughs) We might as well take it seriously now. Let's pray together. Hey, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would have The capacity by your grace to see your lowliness, your humility, your humanity, your suffering in our place, you being tempted in our place, you being weak and fragile and vulnerable in our place. And that we would also see you in the words of Daniel coming in the clouds and being presented to the Ancient of Days to receive power and glory and dominion and a name that's above every name. And I pray that we wouldn't reduce you and I pray that we wouldn't simply hold to one part of who you are but I pray that you would give us the faith and the courage to believe the totality of who you are. That you are the sovereign God of history that you are compassionate and merciful, and you are a warrior. And I pray, Lord, that we would take our refuge in you, that we would hide in you, and that we would trust you. And we long for you to return. We ask that you would return and make all things new. And we don't know when that day is going to be, but we pray that you would give us faith and patience to live as if that day is tomorrow. I pray, Lord, that any places there's an invitation to tear down temples before you have to, you would help us to do that. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us again with courage and faith to have a past and to have a future so that we can live in the present as people that are wise. In Jesus' name, amen.